Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this is going to be fun. I hope you guys are going to enjoy this. If you listen to the bonus episode that we put out last week with Steve Postel, you know what's going on. We are going to be talking to every member of the immediate family, which are the, a super group that have recently come together and get a load of who's in this. Steve Postel on guitar, Wadi Wachtel on guitar, Russ Kunkel on drums, Leland Sklar on bass, and today's guest, Danny Korchmar, also on guitar. That's what's going out there. Five of the most legendary session musicians in history. And we get to hear from each one of them and hear all of their stories. Danny has done a lot. In fact, let me recommend, I, I encourage all of you to check these guys out on YouTube. Check these guys out on Facebook. They are doing so many fun things, posting all these great videos. Leland posts a daily video of his recollections of his mu music career. And uh, it's all fantastic. In fact, on June 26th, they're going to be live streaming a live show of theirs from the Coach House. So get on social media, give them a follow, stay in touch, so you can be you can hear about all this stuff. Now, Danny has had a long and career that has included so much cool stuff. I assume everybody knows by now, but in case you don't, he grew up with James Taylor. They've been buddies since they were young teenagers. And when James's career starts taking off, Danny becomes basically his musical partner. They write songs together, they record together, they produce together. So on Sweet Baby James, there's Danny. On albums like Carol King's Tapestry, there's Danny. And those guys, Russ, Lee, Waddy, they all work together on some of the biggest albums of all time, especially in the 70s and 80s. There's, they work closely with people like Stevie Nicks, Linda Ronstadt, Jackson Brown, Don Henley. Cooch produced Building the Perfect Beast. And uh, he wrote All She Wants to Do is Dance. So we talk, and he co-wrote and produced this song right here, Dirty Laundry. I love this song. I mean... This song is still as prevalent and as important as it ever has been. So we get into it deep with all this stuff. We hear about all stories about all these things. We also get into it. I had to write it all down because there's so much stuff. We talk about him producing an Ivan Neville album called If My Ancestors Could See Me Now that I love. We talk about him working with Billy Squire. We talk about him working with Andrew Gold. We talk obviously about Linda, Carol, Hall & Oates, John Bon Jovi, Jackson Brown, John Waite. Billy Joel, he produced the River of Dreams album. We talk about him working with Bob Seger. We, <laughs> so as this, as this conversation goes on, you can tell that Cooch is getting kind of more and more warmed up. And at the end, he brings the gold. We talk about he was supposed to produce the follow-up album to the third iteration of Van Halen with Gary Sharon. And he talks about why that didn't happen. He also produced a Hanson album, Hanson that uh, he's got some really funny things to say about that as well. He explains a lot of the songs that he's written. It, anyway, this is just such a deep and rich and entertaining conversation. I love it. His personality comes through. You can tell what he's like. You can tell why he's been in the business for over 50 years. He is the man, okay? So I hope you guys enjoy this conversation. I don't know how you couldn't. It is so full of good stuff. He called me from his home in L.A., Okay, well, so Danny, before we get too far down the road, if one of us were to die, like in the next five or ten minutes of a heart, sudden heart attack, I would regret not asking you the main question that I want to know more than anything else in the world from Danny Korchmar. I want you to tell yeah. me the entire story of James Taylor's Sweet for 20G song. 
That is my favorite James Taylor song. I don't know what a suite for 20G means. I don't know why it's two songs kind of stuck together. I want you to tell me everything you remember about that song. Certainly, will do. Okay, so the name Sweet for 20G comes from that was James's advance from Warner Brothers to make that album. So, that's okay, what that's, that's I wondered if it was a bunch of girls in like an apartment 20 apartment 20G. That would have been nice. <laughs> that would have been nice. Okay. I, I like that story better. Actually. Use that one. Uh, okay, so that's where the name came from. Okay, I got it. Yes, right. And what it was is that he had bits and pieces. James, you know, uh, often writes tunes and then doesn't quite finish them, and then he adds them to something else. Or he's all writers do that, of course. Mm -hmm. All songwriters do that. So they had decided, Peter and, and James had decided, I guess, to put these tunes together into a suite and just use the bits that he had. So that that's what we did. Um, basically, he put the, the things together. Us boys learned it and played it right through. Mm -hmm. Wow. So uh, it was... Yeah, it was those. They were bits and pieces of songs, unfinished songs that James had. Okay. And uh, as I said, he and Peter, you know, put it together and made it into Sweet for Twenty G. Okay. Mm -hmm. So Peter or yeah. James or somebody thought these songs sound better smashed together than they would separately on their own. They were unfinished. You see. Okay. Those okay. bits and pieces were unfinished. They only lasted as long as they did. He didn't finish them. So as a result, uh, <laughs> James or Peter or both of them had the idea that they would put them together into a suite without, uh, so the James didn't, Got it. he ended up not finishing those tunes, you know? Yeah. Uh, okay. And that happens, that happens a lot with a lot of us. I love it. Yeah. That's one of my favorite songs ever. And it's one of my favorite songs to sing. And I've always wondered what the full story of that was. Okay, good. Now I can die happy because I've answered the one thing that I've always wondered for all these years. Okay. <laughs> so let's talk about the immediate family. This is obviously kind of a super group. There's you, there's Wadi Wachtel, Lee Sklar, Russ Kunkel, Steve Postel. I am curious. I mean, obviously you guys are, and I and I mean this as an absolute compliment, you guys are some of the most famous Robins to someone else's Batman, like ever, you know? I mean, you're the guys who come in and make somebody sound good, feel good, look good, be creative, whatever it might be. You're the ones who are those building blocks. I can imagine, I mean, I know you all have known each other for years, but who idea, whose idea was it 
to come together in this form and do this band? Uh, uh, who's I, Oh, you're talking about immediate family. Well, yes. okay. So I'm not sure if you know the story, but I was offered a, uh, a record deal by uh, uh, Vivid Records, which is a record company in Japan. Okay. And I, it got to me through my friend, Fred Mullen. Uh, Kaz um, got in touch with Kaz, who's the guy from the label, got in touch with Fred. Uh, do you know, do you know Danny Korshmar? Will he be interested to make a solo album? Fred then contacted me. And then we threw out a bunch of ideas. Fred lives in Nashville. And he said, you know, I have great guys here. We could do it in Nashville. It'll be great. I said, nah, I don't want to go, I'm going to go to Nashville. Gonna, first of all, it's a red state. So yeah, right there. got it. Got it. Yes. <laughs> no, right. But um, I'm with you, brother. <laughs> so what, what I realized is that the best way to do this is with my old pals, my, my dear buddies. Mm-hmm. And amazingly, they were all around. Everyone was available. And I've been working with Steve Postel on various things. Uh, Steve is a very talented fellow, and he lives right around the corner from me. Mm-hmm. And he has a studio in his, his garage. So that was the perfect place to do pre-production. And then Steve came with me over to the uh, over to Groove Masters, Jackson Brown Studio. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. amazingly, all the fellows, Russ Lee and Waddy, were all available. And Waddy had just gotten off a tour, a Stevie Nicks tour. The other boys were in town. So... It was a no-brainer. I said, oh, let's mm-hmm. go. Absolutely. And they were mm-hmm. very generous in, in that they kind of worked for me for a fraction of what they usually get. Because <laughs> they're the first call guys. These are the bad motherfuckers of destiny, you know. Mm-hmm. So I was thrilled that they came in. And we all, you know, we hit it right away. We, it was like falling off a log because we have played together so long and for, mm-hmm. in so many different circumstances that we really know how to play together, as you can imagine. Yeah. And, you know, Steve fit in very well immediately. Good. And we went ahead and did it. We, we made the record. And about halfway through the, making this thing, I said, well, geez, you know, we should make this a group. We should call it a group, you know. <laughs> and everyone was having so much fun. And then we also had received, I received an offer to do gigs in Japan. Hmm. So here's the f- perfect opportunity to put the boys together and go do a tour where everybody gets paid mm-hmm. and uh, we get to play this music. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened. At, at that point, I think I gave it the name Immediate Family. But uh, it was a pretty obvious call because that's sure. exactly what we are. Yeah. You know, we are. I mean, we've been playing together. Most of us have been playing together for 50 years. Gosh. And uh, we, Man. you know, exactly. Yeah. So like, you know, we really know how to read each other. Okay. Um, so at the, so, uh, was, at the risk of, I hope this isn't a, a, a sensitive question. I mean, are, would you be considered the leader of this band? I mean, you're the one, they came together around you your recommendation i'm not i'm wondering if is there a leader in this band i mean who calls the shots all right that's an interesting question there is no one leader of the band the band is run as a democracy and everyone is equal all decisions are made in terms of you know uh majority rules in other words if three of the members decide this is what we should do that's Mm. what happens interesting um and it's all run by a majority votes but basically to tell you the truth we always all agree yeah. There's very rarely anything we don't agree on. Yeah. So I, I wanted to make it a band. I didn't want to be the leader of the band. I wanted everyone to have an equal play. These guys, you don't get to lead these guys unless you're right. paying them thousands and thousands of dollars a day, you know? Yeah. So the idea was to make it to make it a democracy. And yeah. uh, a lot of times in bands, democracy doesn't work. In this band, it does work. Absolutely. Good. Good. I, I'm, I'm sure, too, that after 50 years of friendship, immediate family is going to end some of those relationships, right? It's all meant to be mm-hmm. good fun. Yeah. 
Well, cool. So what's yeah. the plan? I mean, you, it sounds like Japan, now, obviously, we're in strange times with coronavirus and everyone is grounded and all that kind of stuff. But under normal circumstances, first of all, I should say I have friends who have seen your L.A. shows and they will not stop talking about it, how great they are. So oh, I know there's fantastic stuff there. What will the plan be eventually? Well, I'll tell you what, we're going to have to wait out, obviously, Corona, like everyone else. Yeah. Um, terms of live performance which we love doing yeah. and we had gigs booked obviously everything got canceled or moved out or, or mm -hmm. moved up you know mm -hmm. what we're going to try to do is keep a uh, as much of a presence as we can via uh youtube mm -hmm. and uh, uh facebook and making videos and and uh constantly putting material out putting you know mm -hmm. yeah putting material out on our youtube channel and on the other uh, uh social platforms and keep it alive like that. Yeah. I've watched we some of those videos. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, I've watched some of those videos of you guys. Everybody's, you know, it's like a Zoom thing, but everyone's doing, they're uh, performing the songs that you guys made popular back in the day. They are so fantastic and so much fun. Mm -hmm. And it's great for yeah, a music yeah. lover like me to watch you guys, these names that I've known my whole life, having fun out there performing these songs. It's like a new lease on life. Well, it, you're right. Well, it, it is fun to do it. Of course, it'd be more fun to do it if we could all get together in the sure. same room. Yeah, sure. But, uh, and, you know, like we've been doing, but mm -hmm. uh, uh, because of the quarantine situation, we haven't been able to do that. And that's this is how we found to work around it mm -hmm. as, as a temporary situation. Yeah. And um, we are, well, as you've heard, we're, we're a very good live band. Mm -hmm. all, the, all the tunes we do are original. As a matter of fact, I introduced the band by saying, we're a cover band that does all original. Yeah. <laughs> nice. That's Great. my opening salvo. I like that. Audience, and that's exactly what we are. We're covering tunes, but we wrote them, we produced them, we played on them, you know, all of them. That's all great. Them. So uh, we don't do anything that isn't original with us in terms of uh, as, as writers, you know. Yeah. And uh, that's kind of our, our hook. Okay. Mm -hmm. The new single is Cruel Twist. Well, you stepped on a lot of toes And you broke a lot of hearts And you rolled up and down Against a lot of people's body parts You thought that loving would be good for you All that loving and you still feel blue You think about the life you missed It's such a cruel twist Such a cruel twist such a cruel, cruel twist Such a cruel twist Such a cruel, cruel twist Yeah, the good and bad things you do Gonna come back to you Once you were sitting pretty And the world was at your command now I was trying to find it on YouTube, and I found a li a live version that you were fronting from, I think a couple of years ago. It kind of bluesy, hard rock. Um, is that what I, I don't know that I've heard the regular version? Is that sort of indicative of what this whole album is? Is it a lot of? Is it harder? Well, the, the album is rock and roll. The okay, album is good. rock and roll for sure. We're only interested in big beat stuff, even though some of the tunes are ballads but they're rock and roll ballads sure okay good uh, so everything falls into that category that tune is the tune i wrote quite a while ago 
with uh, the title was suggested by my old pal Harvey Brooks, the great bass player, mm. and he suggested the title, and I went from there, mm-hmm. put it together, and um, it's been around a while. And I resurrected it when we started playing with the boys because I knew it was nice. a good live tune, great live tune to be playing, you know. Yeah, I'm curious, mm-hmm. you you in particular, were you, are you someone who prefers? creating in the studio or in a live environment? I'm sure you can do everything, but if you had a preference, where are you at your best? You know, all, all of the above, man. I, really? I can't say, you know, I, I love playing live. It's, it's great because the vibe that the audience gives you back is, is just unmistakable. In the studio, of course, you have more control and it's a different kind of situation and you get to analyze what you're doing. And fortunately for me, I've been in the studio with a lot of geniuses, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was all great. That was the height of the studio situation. That was back in the '80s and '90s, and going into the, you know, to the next century. But uh, at that point, yes, uh, studio. Lots of stuff happened in the studio. We yeah. all were in the studio all the time. Yeah. Uh, and then the paradigm changed, didn't it? Because mm-hmm. artists couldn't make as much money from uh, just records. It used to be you'd make an album and you go out and promote the album. Mm-hmm. Now I think you make an album to promote the tour. That's right. So I think it's, I think it's kind of reversed. In yeah. that way, yeah, and of course, for all, for all of us, we have to deal with what the reality of any uh, of you know the, the current zeitgeist, mm-hmm. and we have to adapt to it and make it work for us. Yeah, yeah. Going back to James Taylor for a minute, you've—I mean, you and James have retold your history together. I'm not going to ask you to do that again. I think we all know it. But one thing I am curious about that I don't know that I know is originally—I mm-hmm. mean, you guys have been best buddies since you were like in in your young teens. Um, And at some point, I'm guessing you both had aspirations of becoming singer-songwriters, and he took off. Uh, And I wondered Mm -hmm. if, were you, I mean, did you, at that point, did you think, well, I'm going to be, I'm going to make, I'm going to be happy supporting other people, or were you still thinking, my shot's coming too? I mean, your 73 album, Cooch, is fantastic, Mm -hmm. by the way. I love that album. And uh, I do. Innuendo is pretty good, but Cooch I think is great. And uh, I agree with you. I okay, that's a better album by far. Yeah, good. But I'm just wondering, at some point along the way, you two were both on the same path 
and then his took off and yours did something completely different, but both successful. Was there a moment in there when you kind of downshifted maybe into thinking, well, I guess I'm not going to be like James Taylor. I'm going to do this other thing. And when would that well, have been? I have to really think about, you know, that, that's a, um, I'm not sure about that. When we were kids growing up together, it never occurred to me that I was going to be anything or that he was going to be anything. Or that we didn't know it. We, we just wanted to have fun mm. and, uh, and chase, chase chicks and, mm -hmm. and, have, and play some acoustic guitar and, and have fun, you know? Yeah. So it never occurred to any of us that we we're going to make a career out of it until later. Now, by the time I was 18 years old, 18, 19, graduated high school, I knew I wanted to be a rock and roll musician. That's uh -huh. it, period. No other way, no plan B, that was it. And I, I had a band as soon as I graduated high school called the King Bees. So we did pretty well in New York, played all the clubs, and we made some records and stuff. But I always knew James was brilliant, brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And uh, when we got the flying machine together, that was my second band. Of course, I did that with James. Mm -hmm. Now a fish, kind of likes the water, just where it's bound to be. And a monkey kind of digs banana, so he lives in the top of a tree. But my eyes are made for darkness So the nighttime is right for me Said I'm a night owl, honey Sleep all day long Now most folks that like the daytime Like to see the shining sun Said they're up in the morning Off and running to the too tired for having fun Bright light shine, my daytime has just begun. Whoa, baby, I'm a night owl, honey. Sleep all day long. Now, won't you turn out that bright light, baby? You're just about to drive me blind. Whoa, whoa, draw them curtains for me, mama. Yeah, watching your sleep, my love. That band with James. I wanted to call it the James Taylor group because I knew he was. Really? Yeah, oh. sure. I, I knew he because he was like one of a, one in a million, one one in a billion, you yeah. know, in terms of his talent. Uh, I've never felt um, 
like, oh, I want to be the guy. I've got, I want to be James Taylor. I want to be the star. I never thought that way. Oh. I want to play music. I want to play rock and roll. I want to be in a great band playing terrific music. Yeah. And that's always what I wanted to do then and now. Interesting. So, uh, the, you know, and it's not to say that I don't have an ego. I have a huge ego, but, but uh, <laughs> I don't uh, feel I have to be the guy. I want to be with, uh, in a situation where everyone is great. Yeah. And I want to be part of something where everyone is great. My heroes originally were uh, the Stax Bolt band, you oh, know, nice. Booker T. The MGs and the Marquis mm-hmm. and, and the Motown band. I, I, loved, I loved the idea of being in a group. You know, that, that was uh, making records and playing together and, and creating great stuff all the time. That was always my ambition. And uh, here I am in a great band. So That's great. I guess it worked out pretty well. Good mm-hmm. for you, man. It worked out. Well, and you've both had legendary yeah. careers. Okay, before I want to talk about some of these other geniuses that you that you worked with. But before I do, you sort of chuckled when I when I praised your solo album. Do you not do you not like your solo material? No. I don't really? like it very much. I, I didn't, innuendo, I don't think it's very successful at all. I didn't like that very much at all. I don't. Listen in. didn't really work the other one uh, the first one coot is better than that and that shows my kind of innocence and, and naivete and putting it together oh. i played a lot of the instruments on it played drums on it and bass and all this stuff and uh i had a lot of fun doing that but i was trying to find as an artist i was trying to find myself i didn't really know who i was yeah and I, to tell you the truth i never really thought like a solo artist and that's not mm-hmm. how i ever saw myself i mm-hmm. wanted to be part of something always mm-hmm. but i also wanted to play the you know stuff that I had all these songs and I wanted to uh, um, present them, you know, yeah, the yeah. best way I could. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I noticed that little hesitation there and I thought that's interesting because I really like, I like both those albums a lot, but I think Cooch is especially good. It's just as good as anything else from back then, but yeah. Okay. I, yeah. I think, yeah, I think that that's the one I, I would, I would, I'd rather people listen to that one than innuendo because i was really groping for that got it okay all right now you've done a million things and i we could be here for days talking about all of it but i've sort of cherry picked about a dozen credits of yours that i wanted to go deep on one of them obviously needs to be don henley and the reason one of the things i don't think you get maybe i'm wrong maybe uh maybe somebody else was doing this and i just missed it but i feel like you don't get enough credit cooch for being the guy that is 
merging up and coming technology through synthesizers with great rock and roll, especially classic rock and roll. And I, you mm-hmm. know, the, the, obviously that comes out huge in, um, dirty laundry and then the entire mm-hmm. building the perfect beast album is like this i don't mm-hmm. know that anyone else did it as tastefully and effectively as you did i don't know are were you sort of seen as a pioneer at that time of merging you know the classic laurel canyon sound with up-to-date synthesizers was anyone else doing it like you well, I think other people were doing modern stuff. Certainly Peter Gabriel was doing brilliant True. modern stuff. True. And uh, other people too. But um, at the time, I didn't really think about whether I was getting the credit. Or not. Believe me, I get plenty of credit for that. Okay, I have got good. people I really respect coming up to me all the time and telling me, you know, that that's a great album and that, uh-huh. you know, and, and giving me a lot of kudos for it. At the time, I didn't get so much, but I didn't really worry about it too much at the time. I was too too interested in just creating more stuff. Mm. Now you got to remember, working with with a great uh, a great singer songwriter like Henley opens up a lot of uh, areas because of that wonderful. I mean, he's an incredibly great vocalist, as well you know. Mm-hmm. And he was open. He wanted these other ideas. He wa- he didn't want to be, you know, Mister Eagles. He wanted to try something different. He wanted yeah. to go in a different direction as a solo guy. And I was right there with him. I, and I, I, so between the two of us, we went in a in a bunch of different directions, and we yeah. had a great time doing it. Let me tell you, yeah, uh, that was yeah. the most fun I ever had in the studio was was uh, working with with him on, the, on that stuff because yeah. there was no holds bar. You know, if I came up with a great idea, an interesting idea that he felt he could sing to, that he could write and sing to, we'd go in the studio and start recording the next day, bam, no just like that. No you know. And uh, so it was very open situation and a great situation for me to express myself and, and for and to help him express himself. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, in my opinion, yes, it was ahead of the time, ahead of its time. Definitely. I think uh, so, too. And I think, I think oh, go ahead, please. I was going to say that album, Building the Perfect Beats, holds up to anything mm-hmm. that came out in the 80s. And I mean anything. Yep. Phil Collins, uh, Peter Gabriel, uh, the police, anything. Yeah. That album is just as good and better than any of those records that came out. Even though it wasn't said a lot at the time, that album has held its place. Yeah. I'm very proud of what I do. And I do, I get a lot of respect from my peers about good. that. Good. You know, now maybe Rolling Stone didn't know a whole article about what a big genius Cooch is, but I didn't give a fuck at that time. You know, <laughs> uh, I was having too much fun. I was yeah. having too much fun. And uh, believe me, my peers and other musicians and other songwriters and other incredibly talented people did acknowledge you know that, that i had a lot to do with good. you know a great deal to do with making that album as good as it was good i'm i'm disappointed that that album is not recognized as one of the greatest albums of the 80s which it absolutely fucking mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. by any standards you know mm-hmm. but nobody could touch them sorry no yeah. one could touch them no one was did anything any better than that stuff all during the 80s so uh, at this point now, it's considered a classic as well as it should be. Yeah. And, I, and I do get people coming up to me, people I respect, pals of mine, coming up to me and saying, Cooch, that's great, great stuff, fantastic. So yeah. I feel good about it. Good. And also, I made, I made a pretty good amount of money from it. I bet you did. <laughs> I'm going to ask you more about that later. Um, so let's talk about, I want to specifically, all she wants to do is dance. You wrote that song. Pin, and all she wants to do is dance, dance. Rebels 
curious if did you bring it to the sessions was it something you had laying around did you create it then in the course of making that album where did it even come from well i'll tell you what um we had one of the great things about working with henley was that uh whatever piece of gear came out we had the first one Mm. you know he'd hear about it because we were pals with toto and they knew all about all the gear that was coming out all the new Mm -hmm. synths and, and drum machines so they would clue us and say oh you know there's there's a, this Lynn drum, which is great. Henley goes, get one. <laughs> Bang, shows up the next day. Then we heard from, I guess, Steve Percaro about the DX7, right? And uh, we got the first one in the United States. Henley, Henley turned over to his mm-hmm. aide-de-camp, Tony Tavis, get one. Bang, the next day, there it was, the first DX7. No one had seen one before, man, mm-hmm. you know? So I took it home, and there was one of the stops on there, one of the uh, presets on there was called Sample and Hold. So I slowed it way down and I ran it through a couple of fuzz tones and an amp and that, and that's the basis of, of all she wants to do is dance. So I started messing around with it and I made, I recorded the basic groove that, that you hear on the record on my little demo studio. Really? And the next morning I, I woke up and I wrote all the words in about 20 minutes and uh, <laughs> then I brought it to Don and he immediately recognized this was a cool thing. Yeah. And he said, let's do it. And that went and we did. And that's, that's kudos to Henley because uh, he didn't say, hey, I didn't write it, so no, man, we can't do it. True. Nothing like that. Good. He, does, he, doesn't, he, he didn't care where a good idea came from. And that's the way all great music is made. You're not supposed to uh, throw stuff out just because you didn't think of it. Yeah. You know, I don't care who thinks. And as a producer, let me tell you, I don't care who thinks of a good idea. Right. You know, if it's a good idea, we're going to use it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So there, there you go. Good. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell me then, I want to know the story then about The End of the Innocent, specifically the song. Yeah. 
fan and I remember I remember the first time I was I would have been 15 16 years old when that song came out I remember the first time ever mm-hmm. hearing it on the radio and thinking oh it's the new Bruce Bruce Hornsby and because there's right. just something about it's like a guitarist and you know this it's anybody could play the same chords but it comes out of Cooch's fingers and it sounds different than it does out of somebody else's fingers and the same was That's true right. for Bruce playing those chords in that song Whose idea was it to bring those two together? How did it even happen? Was that you? It wasn't me. Uh, Don was friends with Bruce. We were all friends with Bruce. We okay. knew him. And uh, we were starting uh, on that album, End of the Innocence. And I guess Bruce sent Don, or, or probably sent him a demo, a very simple demo, a drum machine, synth bass, just like he did on his own records, and those beautiful piano chords, mm-hmm. which uh, set Don off right away. He's very... The way Henley works is he's turned on by the music and then it suggests lyrics to him. And then he wrote those brilliant, brilliant lyrics at the end of the innocent. And that whole album, by the way, is a Reagan era album. Sure is. Um, You know, it's all the statements about the Reagan era and uh, not deliberately. It isn't like we sat down and said, oh, let's write a Mm -hmm. Reagan, you know, let's let's talk about Reagan. It was just just worked out that way Mm because we wanted to reflect and Don certainly wanted to reflect what was going on in the world right then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's a great, great song. And that lyric would, I mean, it's sensational. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Okay. I wondered what the story was there. Um, I want to ask you about another eighties album that you worked on about a week or two ago. I have a big CD collection. I thought, what haven't I listened to in a long time that I'm kind of in the mood for? And I pull, I pulled out Ivan Neville's, if my ancestors could see me now CD. And I get mm-hmm. in the car and I'm listening to it. I haven't listened to this thing for years. And I used to love this album. And I'm like, who produced mm-hmm. this anyway? And I look and it's you. And I'm like, hey, no way. I'm going to talk to him like next week. So mm-hmm. I want to know the story about that album. Because uh, I remember so well seeing the video to Primitive Man on MTV a lot. And I went out and bought the album. I've always been curious like what the story behind that was because I assume it was sort of meant to be like a breakout solo you know here's the beginning of Ivan's career but it didn't exactly work out that way I don't know you tell me all right well first of all you know that album is one of the absolute absolutely one of my favorite albums that I ever worked on good yes I love that album I love Ivan Neville 
And uh, there's no way in the world I would have not produced it. He got in touch with me. I met him over at um, Keith's hotel room, actually. Uh, oh. And um, we were all over there hanging out. I think it was this. Probably um, Sunset Marquis. No, it wasn't the Marquis. It was, uh, it was uh, uh, Chateau. Okay. So we were all over there. A few of us were all over there. And that's where I met Ivan. I talked to him. I said, listen, I, I got to produce your album. And he agreed with me. He actually, I think he said to me, you, you need to produce my album, <laughs> which I said, absolutely. You know, and uh, we got together. Ivan had a rehearsal place around the corner and we, you know, he, he made a lot of demos. And, and uh, my first thing was I listened very carefully to his demos because they were great. And I wanted to recreate them. But at the same time, I wanted to bring in guys that were going to take it to another label. Mm-hmm. You know, for instance, Jeff Picaro played on it. Wadi is mm-hmm. on it. Mm-hmm. Steve Jordan's on it. You know, all the all my all my buddies, all my sure. badass buddies are on. Yeah. There's no way in the world I would have not done that album. And as a matter of fact, the label tried to lowball me on my price. Really? And uh, you know, so I had a choice between saying "fuck you" and walking away, <laughs> or doing the record. So I, I I took less than my usual fee to make the record. You know? Nice. Because there's no way I wasn't going to do it. Yeah. Anyway, I love Ivan. Ivan Ivan is one of the most soulful guys ever. Oh, that and, voice. And songs were great. And let me tell you, I loved every minute of making that record. Oh, I'm so glad to hear it. I have always loved that album. I remember it so well. And I, I assume the dichotomy between a song called Primitive Man about how he's just not really made for these times, so to speak, mm-hmm. but the song itself right. incorporating like every of the moment production technique is the point of that song. Is that right? Uh-huh. Well, kind of, yes. Uh but uh, in cutting that track, that particular tune, I brought all my buddies in. I had Keltner, Jimmy Lee, my, one of my best friends in the world, Jim Keltner, uh-huh. who, was, who was one of my absolute best friends in the world. And then Steve Jordan on drums, also one of my absolute best friends yeah. ever. And then on percussion, also Jeff Picaro. So there's three drummers, all playing different stuff. <laughs> Jimmy was playing a uh, drum machine set. It was like an MPC with pads. So he was triggering these pads with his fingers and playing along. Jeff was playing these metallic things that he brought to this session. And Steve was playing traps. He was playing his kit. Mm. I think Waddy's on it too. And I think Ivan played bass. And we just hit it, man. It, mm-hmm. Remember, th- these cats are all like, you know, these are my best friends. These yeah. are my brothers, you know. And, and yeah. his too. And, and Ivan's too. So yeah. it just it all flow, it, it just flowed together. Oh, all the people who used on that record, all the people who used on that record were, you know, people of the ilk of, of Jimmy Lee and, and Jeff Ricaro and Steve yeah. and yeah. also some of Ivan's pals from New Orleans who are also great. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, and, uh, uh, I love that record. And there's so many, every name you mentioned plus more is on that record. It's like the biggest all-star thing you've ever seen. So yeah, I've always had a soft spot for it. I love that album. Um, yeah. Me okay. too, man. Me too. I'm glad to hear you say that. I ever worked on. Good. Oh, absolutely. I'm so glad to hear you say that. Now, yeah. I got to ask you about, did you co-write Shot of Love with Billy Squire?
I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> because you're listed on there. Now, I'm a huge Billy uh, Squire fan. And that's wow. my second favorite Billy Squire song. And you listed, it's listed as you co-writing it. Well, you know, I don't remember too much about that. Uh, Billy got in touch with me. This is years ago. Billy got in touch with me. I had this track, I guess, that I, it was just on a cassette. I just had a track that I pounded away. And I played it for him. And he said, oh, that's groovy. And he took it away. But by the time he had written the song, I didn't even recognize it. And it was oh. it so, completely, so completely different than what I'd given him. And I haven't heard it in a million years. So I don't know if I'll even recognize it or not. But I was very, very generous of Billy to give me uh, co-writing on that. Okay. Because he did most of the he certainly did most of the writing on it. I wondered um if it had because you played on Bob Dylan's Shot of Love album and I right. wondered if That's there right. was a connection somehow, you know, if uh not I don't know. No. no. Okay. No. No, not at all. Okay. Interesting. No, no connection. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now I got to ask you about Andrew Gold. I love Andrew Gold. Okay. And uh, I have Good. all of his albums, and you're in the What's Wrong With This Picture album. I assume that's you playing Good. some Waka Waka guitar in the background of Lonely Boy. Tell me some Andrew uh, Gold stories. I love him. You and everybody we've just been talking about is also on all of his albums. And I assume uh, mm-hmm. Linda Ronstadt had something to do with this. Tell me about Andrew, working with Andrew. Well, the first when I first met Andrew was because Peter Asher had discovered him uh-huh. uh, and uh, brought him in. And uh, as soon as I met him, I, it was love at first sight. A great guy, funny, smart, mm-hmm. intelligent, hilarious. Is everything you you know? Is one kind one of the kind of guys that you definitely want to hang out with. You know? Yeah. And actually, we all loved him. We all thought he was a great cat. He was. He was hilarious and so smart and so fucking talented. You know. Yeah. And he was just a great cat. So I don't remember playing on on uh, that particular track. Oh. That might not be me. I, okay. Man, I don't even remember. I, I don't. I don't remember. To tell the truth, I don't remember. But I do remember that all of us played on all of our on, on everything. Yeah. Yeah. And. Uh, we were like, it was a big family. Everyone knew everyone. Everyone hung out all the time. Yeah. With throwing ideas at each other. All of us. We had the whole of a community, you know. Yeah. And yeah. Andrew was an important part of it. We all loved him. He's a very talented fellow. Really mm-hmm. super talented, as, as well you know. Mm-hmm. He was great to hang out with. He's great to play music with. And, and yeah. uh, just on every level, really talented guy. Good. No doubt. Where did he go? Mm-hmm. Because after he put out his four solo albums and then... Uh, it kind of dropped off after that. And I've always wondered where well, he went. Well, he was uh, touring with Linda. Him and yeah. Kenny, Kenny Edwards, another brilliant, brilliant musician, a wonderful mm-hmm. guy. He's also gone, unfortunately. And uh, they both were out with Linda at that 
And then I'm not sure what happened. I think he got another interest. I think he was producing. I'm not, I'm not sure. You know, good question. Why he didn't pursue with dogged determination his solo career. I, yeah. I really, I'm not sure about that. You know? Okay. Yeah, there's like mm -hmm. uh, Buddy Holly covers albums and like a Halloween right. sound effect. I'm like, it's like, you're Andrew Gold. Why are you not still mm -hmm. doing your thing? You're so good at it. You know, <laughs> I've just never understood what the story was there. Um, okay. I can't answer. I can't, I can't answer that question. I do not know. Uh, we started seeing less and less of them, and I'm not sure why or what happened. Oh, that's too bad. Uh, yeah. Okay, mm -hmm. we should talk about Linda. So one, one other thing. One other thing. I yeah, tell please. You that, you know, I was out as a playing in the Troubadour reunion tour, James mm -hmm. and Carol. Right? That's ten years ago, mm -hmm. and we played uh, Hollywood Bowl. Okay, mm -hmm. and you know the place is packed, of course, to see James and Carol. And um, I hear somebody yell during a lull. Somebody yells, "Free bird!" <laughs> and of course, that was Andrew. That was Andrew. It was. <laughs> yeah, I looked out and I saw that it was him. Yeah. <laughs> that's the best. Oh mm -hmm. man. Oh, that's great. Okay, that illustrates because yeah. I just have such a soft spot for him too, and that illustrates what kind of guy he was. I like that a lot. Right. Okay. It cool. does, and as well, you should, you should have a soft spot for him. A great, great talent and a wonderful fellow. We miss him all the time. All of yeah. us miss him. Good. Okay. Good to know. I've wondered what his story is. Uh, we should talk about mm -hmm. Linda because I feel like Linda is sort of having a little bit of a resurgence. I think um, the fact that her health is so poor makes and so she's out of the spotlight makes people miss her. And when they miss, mm -hmm. when a new generation comes up and they miss somebody, that's when things like documentaries start getting made. And you know, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame starts happening. I'll be honest, I'm late mm -hmm. to the game with Linda Ronstadt. Tell me what is the most magical thing about Linda. Where should I begin? If I want to dive into Linda Ronstadt, where do I go? Well, first of all, everything is magical about her. But I'll, I'll tell you my experience with Linda. I had known her before because, remember, we were all uh, working for Peter Asher, uh, for and with Peter Asher. And he was the one that brought all of us together, believe me. he was He's the catalyst for all of us coming together. Okay. Russ, Lee, me, Wad, Andrew, Kenny, everyone. Hmm. He, he really brought us all together. He's a monumental uh, figure in, in uh, 
L.A. music at that time yeah. in the 70s and 80s, monumental. And there's, you know, the, his importance could not be, uh, any, you know, magnified any more mm-hmm. than it, than reality. He's stunningly important. Okay, so I'll tell you my experience with with Linda briefly, which is that uh, I'd stopped touring with James. I got a call from Peter. Would you be interested in touring with with Linda? I said, Fucking yes, absolutely. <laughs> Definitely. So they sent me a board mix of her show so I could learn her show. Right? So I sat there and listened to it in my car over and over and over again. And, uh, you know, basically learned uh, the basics of the tunes. Now, I was never a cat that was going to imitate anyone else's solos. That has never been my, my place. Got it. In other words, there was no way I was going to learn Andrew's solos or Wadi's solos. And I was not told I had to either. You want somebody to do that? Don't call me. <laughs> you know, you call me to, to be me. You don't call me to learn someone else's parts. Right. I don't do that. You know? And I never have and never have had to. All right. So I get there and I knew the songs and how they went and basic arrangement and all that. So I walk out, you know, you get to say, hi, how's everybody doing? Great band. Kenny, Billy Payne, Russ, Bobby Glaub on bass, who was one of the greatest. Great band. Dan Dugmar, I think, was there. And we hit I think the first one was, it's so easy to fall in love. Mm. So I get out there, and I'm, I'm used to playing with James. Now, James, you know, he's not, James is not a belter. He doesn't, you know. So I went out there, and we hit the tune. We start the tune. The tune is counting off. It's so easy. that voice comes to me like a knife mm-hmm. off of those monitors. It was like, it was like somebody drilled a hole mm-hmm. in me. I never heard anything so powerful in my life. Yeah. I went, wow. Oh, my God. I was so thrilled, and, and it was great to play with her, because then I didn't have to. You know, playing with James, to some degree, you have to walk on eggshells because mm-hmm. his tunes have a lot of changes. They're delicate. Uh, he is not a screamer or a belter. He doesn't have a loud voice. James is one of the greatest singers ever, mm-hmm. but he is he's a loud singer. He's not a rock and roller, as per se. So I was in seventh heaven to be able to play these songs. And the set list was a Hank Williams tune, Elvis Costello tune, a, a, a Jim Webb tune, a, a uh, you know a Chuck Berry mm-hmm. tune. A, Buddy Holly, to this, I'm in seventh heaven now, right? <laughs> every tune is great. I can't wait to play every tune. And her voice, un-fucking believable. Yeah. She had so much power and energy and depth. I was in, I was in heaven playing with her. Let me tell you, yeah. just loved it because I didn't have to turn down. I didn't have to walk on eggshells. You could pound away, and it would never overpower her voice. Nothing could. Nothing yeah. could ever overpower her voice. She's the, the, probably the greatest singer I've ever been on stage with. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. I I saw that documentary and was really taken aback by it. And I think the reason why I've never quite paid attention to her was because I remember, <laughs> I remember when I was a little kid was when the album she did with Nelson Riddle came out. And uh, it's her like in a purple dress on the cover. And I remember my mom and my aunts and my grandma and everybody getting that record for Christmas. And so I always sort of put her in a box that that must be what she is, is that she she isn't an artist in her own right. She's sort of just a, a standard singer. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I sort no, of... Nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. Exactly. further from the truth. Yes. Uh, uh, Linda uh, always picked all... Linda picked all her songs yeah. herself. She picked those songs. She knew exactly what she could sing and what she didn't want to sing. She is a, a tremendous band leader and a fantastic... I mean, she knew exactly what to do and what not to do with her voice and with her persona completely and uh there's no one in the whole world i respect more than linda ronstadt nice that's for sure 
Great. Yeah, I think that uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, that do fantastic documentary, it's all working to sort of like bring her back to be top of mind into like later generations that she deserves this credit, you know, so that she's not forgotten. She's really fantastic. Oh, she's one of the she's one of the great, great, great American artists without a doubt. One yeah. of the absolute great American artists, and there's no question about that. Yeah. Okay, you mentioned Carol King. I wanted to ask you about Carol King. Obviously, Tapestry is the big one. I didn't know until getting ready to talk to you that you two were in this band called The City shortly before okay. this. I didn't know about the city right. and I was curious mm -hmm. if if the city had took off taken off would we ever even know what tapestry is or was was the city not I don't know did city underperform and that's why people thought well Carol will just go off and be a solo artist what's the story of the transition there well first of all putting the city together um Lou Adler had offered Carol a deal Lou knew of course being the genius he is yeah. knew what a great pop performer she could be if she wanted to be, if she, because she, he knew what a great songwriter she was. Yeah. And there's, there's no doubt, there's no doubt about that at all. But her first foray into recording as an artist, she didn't want to do it by herself. She wanted to mm. do it in, under the rubric of a band. So she was married to Charlie Larkey at the time. Uh -huh. And I was, you know, I lived right up the road from there, right up the street from them in Laurel Canyon. So I saw them every day and it was decided to make it a little kind of band situation. Mm for that album, uh, mm -hmm. which is a terrific album. It's a really discovering It's a brilliant album. It really is. And uh, kudos all the way down the line to one of the great producers ever, Lou Adler. I mean, he, yeah. let me tell you, there is no one like him now. No <laughs> one that can, that can fill his shoes. No one. I believe, you know? uh, I believe it. You know, so, yeah. and, uh, you know, people that call themselves producers now, please. Don't even fucking talk to me, man. You know, this guy, it's not that he knew more than everybody else. It's just that he knew what worked and what yeah. didn't work way better than than anyone then or now, mm -hmm. you know? So, you know, he wrote the book. And that album, that's the first full-length full, full -length album I ever played on. Oh, really? Okay. That's right. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And, uh, you know, so I got up in the morning. I couldn't believe that I was going to the studio the engineer was great. I can't remember. I think it was Lee Hirschberg. I can't remember who the engineer was, but it was a genius. Wow. And Jim Gordon on drums. Are you kidding me? Yeah. You know? I, yeah. Was, I was just in seventh heaven to be in there, just to be part of it was incredible. I can't express to you uh, enough 
uh, how much I learned and how much Carol was my mentor and, 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 uh-huh. and how much she taught me and how much she did. It's not that she taught me. It's just the watching her and listening to her mm-hmm. was, was, uh, you know, I, I learned a tremendous amount mm-hmm. by, by having been able to work with, with Carol. You know, she's like, let me tell you, working with her likes going to Harvard, man. <laughs> I believe it. I believe it. Well, she's one of the th- <laughs> finest songwriters of all time. I am curious though. What if the city sells two million copies? How would any, uh-huh. what, what? How would everyone's life be different? You know? Oh man, you know. Come on. I I I don't know the answer to that. I do know this: that Carol was not ready to go out and be a mm. star and get okay. on stage. She was not ready for that at all. And if the thing had sold two million records, I don't. God knows what would have happened. But she was not comfortable about going out. Maybe we would have done some gigs. I don't know. Okay. Because Carol didn't really come into her own as a performer until James, she was basically playing piano in James's band. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And then James turned to her and, and, and uh, said, listen, you have to do a couple of your tunes. She said, no, 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 no. He said, absolutely, you got to do it. And then at the Troubadour, he introduced her and she played, you know, some of her tunes there. And everyone in the audience went, oh my God, yeah. you know? Yeah. That that's her. That's the person that, that did all that stuff, and that opened the door. And then she became a lot easier and, and more open about performing, and, and and then she started to enjoy performing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Can you give me one story? I I always hate the question when people ask, "Well, did you know when you were making Tapestry that it would go on to be the classic it is as it is?" Because no one ever knows those things. I don't think. But mm-hmm. do you well, have Lou, Lou knew? Lou knew. No, that's yeah. <laughs> that's probably true. Actually, yeah, yeah. I t- did. No, I didn't know. We'd already made we'd already made two albums before that. True. The City album, as you just said, another one called a uh, writer, Carol writer. King, mm-hmm. which is also a really good album with lots of great songs on it. Mm-hmm. I thought the City album could have gone. I thought that the that writer Carol King album was it could have gone and could have been huge. So by the time we got to Tapestry, I was going, well, I know she's great, mm-hmm. and I love her more than anything, and, and I know she's fabulous, but I don't know, I don't know what a hit is anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't know, you know, but Lou, he knew, he knew. Amazing. And later he had described Tapestry as being the, in quotes, love story, unquote, of records. You yeah. Remember the, the movie Love Story? Yes. It's like everyone in the whole world went to see it. Well. Tapestry was like Love Story, the movie. Yes. And, uh, he saw it. I didn't see it. I thought, you know, the other two should have been a hit. Right. The fuck do I know? <laughs> but, but he saw it. You know. Amazing. It's a classic. Um, okay. I got to ask mm-hmm. you about uh, Hall & Oates. So close.
One of my, I mean, I probably keep saying this, but they're like, they are one of my very favorite bands of all time. And the So Close album is, was quite a departure for them at the time. They were, they were getting more rustic. They're, it's less R&B, it's less new wave, it's less blue-eyed soul, it's more heartland rock and roll. You're involved, John Bon Jovi's involved, you write So Close. What, tell me the story of how you, how this project even came to be. Well, I'll tell you, I had gotten a call from my, from my manager at the time, and uh, Daryl was looking at, you know, they had this song. They actually had an acoustic version of it. It was great. And we were sent that. I was sent that and said, well, you know, can you produce an electric version of this with the band? Now, I had just finished doing an album with, with Johnny called uh, Blaze of Glory. That's coming up next. Yep. <laughs> and uh, he and I were getting along great. We're having a great time. Uh, at that point, uh, and I liked him a lot. I liked John. He, he didn't think like me. He thought differently than me, hmm. and I liked that. So when this thing came, you know, came to me, I said, "Well, uh, hey, you want to do this with me? Let's do this. Let's do this together." You know. And uh, he said, "Sure, great. Oh, I love it. Great. That was all great." So he was in. At that point, he listened to the tune. We wrote. We rewrote it a little bit. Hmm. You know, we changed oh. a few things around here and there. Not that much. We arranged it kind of for a rock band, you know, mm-hmm. and wrote it a little bit. I must say that the song was really written by Daryl, okay. not by Johnny. Orman. It was written by Daryl. Yeah, we added some stuff, but uh, uh, John, being the businessman that he is, he went and said, well, you know, Cooch and I want writer's credit on this, which I never would have done. I never would have had the balls to do that. But, <laughs> okay. you know, Johnny, he's a, great, he's a terrific businessman. Yeah. And, and he's always a great, uh, uh, you know, he always knows how to make the most out of any sure. situation. And it, amazingly, Daryl, if I was Daryl, I would have said, fuck you. you know, exactly. Right. <laughs> right. But, but he did. He was so eager for the thing to be a hit, you know, and to be, and to be done well, that he, uh, he acquiesced to the idea of sharing the writers huh. on that thing. And, uh, which I was surprised about. I never would have, like I said, had the balls to ask for writers on it. Yeah. But Johnny, he had no problem doing it. So, okay, well, fine. All right. Huh. Does it uh, I'm make not gonna, uh, I'm not say no? Right. Does it make for any awkwardness then to work on anything else with them or maintain a friendship or anything? Uh, no, no, no. Daryl was was very you know he was he was wonderful about it. So we brought in we we you know we booked we booked time we brought in uh, uh, Kenny on drums and I think Randy Randy Jackson on bass mm-hmm. and me I can't remember who else it was uh, might have been Ben Mott I can't remember. But uh, we all went in. This is the same people that worked on the Blaze of Glory album, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which we had just finished. So we went in there and we kicked the crap out of that tune. I think it sounded, you know, we did well. It, it, yeah. It, it, it's a good record, but it's a terrific song. And, and it's a terrific song due to Daryl. Okay. You know, for sure. Okay. Mm-hmm. Did you produce you know, that whole album? Johnny and, I can't take, John and I can't take credit for making that, like, the hit. You know, okay. maybe we can a little bit. We produced it, yeah. But Daryl did the heavy lifting on that, and he did the main songwriting. You yeah. did most of that album, didn't you? Produce production wise, no. just that one track. Oh, I thought it was more than that. Okay, okay. I was curious. So now, yeah. So let's talk about Blaze of Glory. In the earth whose last night's bed I don't know where 
I mean, the theme from Young Guns 2, it's huge. I think I've heard this story before. I'm not 100% sure. Why was it just John and not the whole band? I'm not sure. He wanted. I guess hmm. he wanted to make a solo album. I'm not sure what was going on between him and the band. You know, that's like, you know, yeah. these guys were very close and they all had their issues. And God knows, you know, in bands, this stuff happens, you know. Yeah, yeah. And in any case, he felt he wanted to make a solo album, but not just, you know, John Bon Jovi's solo album. So he, 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 this was his way in, was to write songs or create songs based on Young Guns to a really me- mediocre film, if ever there was one. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but this is what he wanted as a vehicle to, to uh, uh, express himself as a solo artist. And as for why he wanted to be a solo artist, you'd have to ask him. You know? okay. Uh, okay. That has a lot, of, a lot to do with his band, with the, the interaction of his band and like I said, with every band, there are always problems and there's mm-hmm. always situations. And God knows, you know, I don't know the story. I don't want to know the story. Sure. Okay. <laughs> you know? Okay. So he called me. I got a call from him. I guess he asked Jimmy Iovine first. And Jimmy, um, uh, he was talking to he was think, uh, talking to a bunch of different producers. And uh, Jimmy gave me a good uh, report, I guess, nice. a good report card. So the next thing I know, I'm on the phone with, with John. And he's saying, well, I definitely want Jeff Beck to play on it. i got to have Jeff Beck playing guitar now. Mm-hmm. Right? Jeff, sure, of course. <laughs> but he said, but Jeff wants to play with his band. Now, his band at the time was Ter- Terry Bazio on drums. Mm. And I'm not sure. A synth player. I think it was a keyboard player. And uh, so I said, John, um, I don't think these are the right guys to do the pop rock album you're talking about doing. Let me, get, let, me, let me put a band together to do this. And then we bring Jeff in to just do the solo. Amazingly, this is over the phone. We hadn't even met each other, Johnny and I hadn't, hadn't met wow. each other. At that point. And I said, you know, and I suggested some guys to him. You know, my first choice, the first guy I suggested was Kenny Aronoff, who I hadn't met at the time, but mm. I knew he was the right guy. Wow. That, that's not wow. that's not a real difficult call, is it? You know, no, it's not. And yeah. then I also wanted Randy to play bass. I love Randy Jackson. At the time, yeah. he was mostly a bass player, great fucking bass player, and a great attitude. Then, of course, Waddy had to be there. Mm-hmm. And then I managed to convince Benmont to come down. And Ben mm-hmm. didn't want to, he said, John Bon Jovi, what do I want to do this? What do I, do? <laughs> I said, Benny, come down here. You, believe me, I wouldn't bring you on something that wasn't fun. You'll dig it. And he did. He did. He came mm-hmm. down there and he, and he loved it. 
since Ben, he doesn't need to do anything, you know. Uh-huh. He only does what he wants at that time and now, too. He only does what he wants to do. He can't be convinced. There's not, not enough money to convince him, and you know. That's great. So, uh, But I convinced him to come down there because all his buddies were there, me and Wad and Kenny and everybody. So he came down, and we all loved it. We all fell in right away and just had a ball. Just had a fucking straight-up ball making nice. that record, man. Nice. Great. Everyone was really into it. And uh, it was just terrific. Did yeah, little Richard come down and play? <laughs> oh, um, little Richard. We just lost little Richard. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, John was being managed by Doc McGee at the time. And between the two of them, they could do anything and get anybody. Sure. And they did. They got, little Richard came down to play. Elton played. Elton came down to play yeah. piano on one thing. And uh, away we went. Yeah, um, cool. Okay. So that was a lot of Making that album was a lot of fun. And uh, I got along really well with Johnny. Great guy. I still think the, the world of him. Terrific fella. Good. Uh, and away we went. We had a ball. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, let me ask you. I got a couple more movie music-related questions for you. One obviously needs to be the Fast Times Richmond High Scout soundtrack. Um, pretty much every member of the Eagles does a solo tune on there, and I think it has something to do maybe with Irving Azoff being a producer on the movie and their manager at the time. What are your recollections of making, of course, Jackson and Somebody's Baby is a classic. Do you remember, I mean, are you on like every song on that album? Oh, no, not at all. Oh, I That's assumed you were on Glenn's that, and I assumed you were on Don's and Timothy's and everybody else's songs on there. Unless I'm credited as being on those, which I doubt I am, uh, then I don't know. And if I was, I was just a side man. But the tune you're talking about, Somebody's Baby. Yeah. We were all pals with Cameron. Cameron knew everybody. We all knew him. We all thought the world of him. And now here's his first film. So he comes to all of us and says, oh, you know, you got any ideas for, you know, songs for this? So uh, I started putting something together, which is the basis of somebody's baby. The chord changes, the hook. Some must be somebody's baby. That Plus the chord changes, the basic movement of the tune. And I said, why can't I take this over to Brown, man? For this to be the thing that it should be. You know, Jackson's got to write it. Mm-hmm. And he lived right over the hill from me. We all, remember, this is, we all hung out all the time, all of us. You yeah. Know? What I mean by all of us is, is Jackson, J.D., Henley, Wad, um, uh, every, you know, all of us. We all yeah. hung out all the time. Yeah. So um, I said, let's do this. And, and, you know, I called Brown and said, let's, you know, I'm going to come over. Let me play this thing, man, for, for 
for Cameron, you know. Mm-hmm. And so we started putting the thing together. I had the idea of Must Be Somebody's Baby, and Jackson wrote that brilliant lyric. Look at that girl with the lights. I mean, yeah. fantastic lyric. And that's what I wanted. I knew that the person to write that lyric had to be Brown because he's one of the best lyric writers ever, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. You know, he's on a, I won't say in a class by himself, but there's no one, no one more brilliant than, than Jackson. No yeah. one. Yeah. And he's one of my best, he's also one of my best friends. So uh, um, I went over there and we started working on this thing with the idea that it would be for Cameron's movie. Mm. Now, uh, somebody's baby is very, very atypical of what Jackson would ever do as a solo artist, as sure. you can imagine. Mm-hmm. There's no social commentary in there. There's no, there's no, there's no Nicaraguans in there. Mm. Yeah. Um, it's true. <laughs> And, uh, you know, so it's way out of his, uh, what, what he usually just wants to do. But he recognized that this is a tune for our pal Cameron, and this is a different kind of situation. So that's a very, very much of a pop song, mm-hmm. which at the time and, and now as well, is not really Jackson's uh, uh, within his, his value, within what, he, what he's comfortable doing. But because it was for uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, he was okay with doing it. But he refused to put it on his album. Yeah, well, you know, David yeah. David Geffen said, "Please put this on your album," but he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't put it on on his album, "Lawyers in Love," uh-huh. which had he put it on there, that album would have sold three, four million records. But yeah. Uh, yeah. there you go. Okay, I think maybe that song playing as uh, Jennifer Jason Lee loses her virginity and shows her boobs doesn't hurt the legacy of that song right i guess not we didn't know that we didn't know how it was going to be used sure you know, sure uh, yeah uh at the time we just wrote the tune we just put the tune together and we we got most of it in one night you know we, wow. we got most of it going in one night um once i brought it over okay and um of course you know he was the perfect guy to write this tune with you know yeah, he was the best greatest songwriters of, of, of my generation for sure and of the last century without a doubt yeah. and uh i was you know we were all lucky but like i said we were all hanging out together everybody was hanging out with everybody and that and, became uh, the place to be well you know his place was a hang my place was a big hang yeah. you know and uh we were all together all the time you know kenny edwards and andrew gold and, and, and jackson and, and jd and wad and bobby glaub and 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 him, all of us used to hang out all the time. We were like family. It yeah. was no big deal, man. You know, that yeah. is, doesn't exist anymore now, but it sure did then. And it was a big, big deal. You know, it was well, you know, to be today. Right. It's interesting. Cause I, um, I've had people on the show who were a big part of like the CBGB scene. And it's interesting to me that, you know, musicians hang out in together in every city in the world, but the music industry came to you now being in Laurel Canyon in LA helps, but you guys were create, you guys were setting the tastes of the time. You know what I mean? People were looking to what you guys were doing to set a standard. That's amazing. You know, could have been anywhere, but it was you guys. Right. Well, I think it had to be here in LA. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, what happened in, in, in New York in the 70s is extremely different, as you know. True. And the music that came out there is very, very different. Yeah. yeah. To be honest with you, I doubt I would have fit in in the New York City. <laughs> That's probably true. That's probably true. Yeah. And I'm from New York. I was born in New York. I'm from New York. I'm a New Yorker. You know? Yeah. 
but uh, God, I would have gotten along with Lou Reed very well. <laughs> Does anyone? No, I'm just kidding. Yes. Now I I could totally see that you guys are of a you're of a very different ilk. Okay, mm-hmm. I have a couple more questions. I want to ask you. Speaking of movie songs, about if anybody had a heart by John Waite. Mm-hmm. wrote that right. song i think you even produced that song john wait is uh-huh. has one of the best talk about he's not i mean he's one of the best vocalists we've ever had and uh, i'm and i mm-hmm. love that movie and that song what can you tell me about the story of that song all right well to start off, i wrote i wrote the music you know i was given the task of writing a tune for that that show for, for it was for a movie um, yep. about, movie? about last night about last night okay so uh I was given the task by the producer of the film or the director, I can't remember, uh, to come up with something. So I came up with the track first, you know, mm-hmm. and it had a lot of soul and feeling, you know, like, this is groovy. Then I said, uh, well, okay. And I brought it to JD, uh, another great songwriter. Yep. And course, he's on that soundtrack too. Yep. Right. But remember, we're all pals. Every, all of us are hanging out together. All of us are creating stuff all the time. So, I brought the track to him and I said, at the time, by the way, I was working on a, um, a Neil Young album called Landing on Water. Mm-hmm. And I was co-producing with Neil on this record. So I didn't have a lot of time, but I created the track at home and, and uh, called Souther and said, man, you know, help me out here. You know, write a tune to this because it will go on a movie and it will do well. So he did and he wrote a terrific lyric for it and uh, weighed in. Uh, to uh, do the vocal but at that time like i said because i was working with neil and this is all happened at record one in the valley mm. and um i was working in studio b with neil so i i said i called henley i said henley come on you know would you please like produce this and make this happen you know mm-hmm. he wasn't doing anything I said okay sure he came down there and him and, and Souther they ran john Waite through the fucking dragon because that's a hot thing if anyone had a yeah. That was above his range, so they sat there forever, you know, trying to get him to uh, to sing those high notes, and they finally got him up there, you know, mm-hmm. to the side of side. Remember, Saturn and Henley; these are guys not easy to please, you know. True, they have very good ideas about what vocals should be and what and what in tune is. They're tough, tough nuts, tough cookies, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, thank God, <laughs> better than me. I, I made the track, gave it to them, 
and they produced John doing the vocal of it. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. It's such a great song. Yeah. Was it, uh, could it have yeah, been for good. anybody? I mean, who, maybe you said this, like whose idea was it to bring in John Waite specifically? Was that JD? Oh, the, the lit, no, it was the label or the manager or okay. the producer. There wasn't any of our ideas, you know, Okay. but he was a good singer. We all liked him. And then, uh, obviously he's a really good singer. Yeah. But no, it wasn't up to me to bring in the singer. Huh. <laughs> I was just a, you know, okay. a working stiff. As we, yeah. You know. Got it. Okay. Could have been anybody. Turned out to be John. That's great. Mm. Okay, let's talk about Billy Joel's River of Dreams album. That, um, mm -hmm. you know, famously is the last thing he ever did. And uh, I'm curious if when you two were working on this album together, if there were hints mm -hmm. or suggestions from him that like, hey, Danny, after this, I'm I'm hanging it up. I don't want to do pop music anymore. Yeah. Well, there weren't any hints. There was. He was definite about it. Uh -huh. he said, this is it. Yeah. You know, yeah. he wasn't kidding around. He was, he okay. was through. Yeah. He said, this is it. This is the last stuff I'm going to do in terms of pop songs. I don't want to write any more fucking pop songs. I'm tired of this shit. He was done. And the last song on that album is called The Last Song. It is. It is. And it was. We had ten. We had nine songs, and he didn't have another one. So I stuck him out in the hallway of, of uh, Hit Factory, got him a drum machine, set up a beat for him. And uh, then I had to go back in the studio and work on the other stuff. And sure enough, he came up with that song. Yeah. Gave him a beat. He wasn't used to to, to writing or working with a beat. So I, I set up the drum machine and gave him a beat. And that helped him a lot. And, and uh, he very quickly came up with that terrific song. Yeah. Yeah. Sitting here in Avalon Looking at the poor Summertime has come and gone And everybody's home again Closing down for the season I found the last of the souvenirs I can still taste the wedding cake And it's sweet after all these years These are the last words I have to say That's why That whole album is great. In my opinion, that whole album is absolutely great. I like that album a lot. I um, I'm curious whose idea was it to bring in like gospel choirs for the title track? Was that you as a producer? Is that your choice? We tried a bunch of different people on on uh, River of Dreams. We tried a few different uh, situations. That song has a very doo wop quality mm -hmm. to it. Mm -hmm. That both he and I he grew up with doo wop. Mm -hmm. Really did being from the East Coast, we all did, you know. So we had a few different people come in and do it. We had the Sims Brothers, who were great, great singers, Frank and, and his brother. They came in and do it, did it. And that, that sounded kind of like Beyond the Belmonts. Yeah. Then we had Bobby Floyd and his brother, Frank Floyd. They came in. And that's probably what you're hearing. In the middle of the night, I go walking in my sleep. From the mountains of faith 
so deep. I must be looking for something. Something sacred I lost. But the river is wide. And it's too hard to cross. Even though I know the river is wide, I walk down every evening and stand on the shore. I try to cross to the opposite side so I can finally find what I've been looking for. In the middle of the night, I go walking in my sleep. That was more of a gospel approach. Right. The first one was kind of do walking, like I said, kind of be on the Belmonts with the white guys, and then the black guys, Bobby and his <laughs> brothers, that came running, and they did. They made it more gospelly, and that's what Billy decided to go with. You know, when you're all the decisions. That... <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to say. When you're creating that song, is it the two of you looking at each other, thinking? This song needs something. What does it need? Does it need doo-wop? Does it need black guys singing gospel? Is that who does one of you say that to the other and then agree? Or how does it, you know, how do, how do decisions like that even get made? Well, we both knew that it needed these background parts. Uh, this kind of interesting, weird background, you know, not weird. They weren't weird at all. But these, these groovy background parts. We mm -hmm. just weren't sure what color. Uh, you know, oh. more. More, more doo-wop, more Bronx doo-wop, or more gospel -y. Yeah. And it was up to Billy. Yeah. Billy. Billy decided he wanted to go with the more gospel approach. And let me tell you, everything was up to Billy. I mean, uh, okay. he, he was the bottom line. He was the bottom line Yeah. on, on all this stuff. We talked about it a lot, but ultimately he made the decisions. Okay, okay. Mm -hmm. What can you tell me about the, the abandoned Van Halen 3, well, third instant, you know, Gary Sharon Van Halen album? What was that? What's the story right, well, there? Well, I was called. I was called. I was one of the many people that were called to come in there and talk to Van Halen. This is Van Halen Three with Gary Sharon as the vocalist, and their, their album they had made, Van Halen Three. It was it. It was what it was. Um, right, right. So I, I got in there. Of course, I knew I knew Eddie from before, and I, and I knew that Eddie was a genius, mm -hmm. which he is. He, he's one of the most you know important guitar players of the last. 50 years without a doubt agreed uh, no one more influential than him and he's not just a guitar he's a very very talented musician on a lot of levels on a lot of levels not just a guitar player you know he's a brilliant brilliant guy so they called me in there and i went over there and, and um, i sat with them and you know other producers had passed on them okay i'll tell you what happened they played us some tracks and went, okay, well, you know, a lot of great stuff. Of Eddie, the fuck, you know. He can't do any wrong. This, this mm -hmm. guy's one of the biggest genius there is, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was handed the lyric sheets. Gary Sharon handed me a bunch of lyric sheets, which I didn't really look at. Then I got on the plane going back to uh, Connecticut, which is where I was living at the time. I get on the plane, and I start looking at the lyrics, and I go, oh, shit. This is not even close to what Van Halen's about. Really, you know, they're kind of they, they were supercilious. They were they were uh, pretentious. Mm. They were, you know, all this stuff. So when I went back to work with them, I said, "Well, this is this ain't you know, you 
you know, all, all the grooves you have are, are terrific and, and interesting and great, but these lyrics, they're not going to work. I used to talk to Eddie, and one of the things I said to Eddie was, I said, you know, there's no pussy in these lyrics, <laughs> you know? And without, 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 I'm, sorry, I'm telling you the truth, without uh, pussy, you don't have a Van Halen record. That's right. You know? <laughs> and him and I, him and I were both big fan, big fans of ACDC. Yeah. And uh, I said we need lyrics like that, like Bon Scott type lyrics, man. You know, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, Gary was a nice fellow, but he was he was kind of very politically correct, mm. and he was. Uh, he was not a pussy hound, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. and that's what you need to be lead singer of Van Halen. You need pussy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Come on. What the fuck are we talking about, man? This is it, you know. So it, it, it was starting to not work out. There was nothing he was presenting, Gary was presenting, that really had, to me, sounded like Van Halen lyrics. Mm-hmm. And Eddie was in a kind of standing. He was, Eddie was not in his best shape that he ever was. It was. He was he was insecure and not sure mm. uh, about exactly how to pr- proceed. The engineer that they had hired was, in my opinion, a, a nightmare. This guy he didn't he didn't know shit. They didn't know how to work Pro Tools, and he was too judgmental. And he was I don't even know why they hired this motherfucker, man. But he was, mm. you know, if I if I if I could, he was living on the property, so I couldn't fire him. No, oh, oh, okay. Then finally they got rid of Gary. Um, and here comes uh, Roth, you know, he comes mm-hmm. back. Now, Roth, he looks at me like, goes, fuck you, who the fuck you think you, you know, he didn't say that, but he looked at me like that, uh-huh. you, know? <laughs> you know. He didn't yeah. think I was a rock and roller, he, you know, he wasn't impressed by those Don Henley records, which he <laughs> sure the fuck should have been, but he wasn't. <laughs> oh, man. Wow. And the whole thing stalled. Yeah. The whole thing stalled. It just died. It just, it just died on the vine. You know, I'm really appalled by that because, you know, I think the world of Eddie Van, I mean, mm-hmm. he's a wonderful fellow and, and a terrific guy. And I think the world of him and also uh, he's brilliant. He's one of the greatest guitar players ever, man. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. No one has gotten even close to him. That's right. On rock guitar is him. No one. Yeah. You know, all the other people are imitating him. Yep. You know, I'm sorry to say this because, you know, I have a lot of respect for Steve Vai and, and Joe Sapriani and all these other guys and they're great. Eddie wrote the fucking book. He sure did. Yeah. Uh, he wrote the book. I'm sorry. No one can touch him. Right. Then or now. That's true. So Those that's guys, not you... to take away from Steve. Steve Vai, who's a lovely fellow, a no. great, great musician. Just Joe Cetriani, who I don't know, but who is also absolutely great. Yeah. But, you know, without Eddie, nothing. Yeah. They all think... learned from him. Those guys you mentioned, I always think of more as technicians, almost, that it's kind of more about what they can do where Eddie can do Eddie's that way too, but he knows how to marry his technique to a great pop or rock song. And not, that's, that's right. kind of the, that's to me, some of the difference. Not everybody else can do that, you know, for whatever reason. Well, you're, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. You are exactly right. You know, and uh, Steve Vai can't do that, unfortunately, you know? No. Yeah. Uh-uh. Nope. Nope. Yeah. No. That's what that's that was what exactly, separates you're exactly right. Yeah, that's it. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's uh, one of the things that separates. You have to remember everyone sure. imitated Eddie after he came out. Everyone. Yeah. And you know what? They all stunk. <laughs> Sorry. Nobody could tap like him. He the way no. his tapping technique, everyone imitated it. No one ever ever came close. Mm-hmm. Not even close to what he could do with that technique. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. But, you know, he was the grandmaster, but he had soul. 
Eddie right. was badass, man. He he was like, was I'm talking about him like he's gone, but you know we haven't no, heard anything from him. I know for, for I a know. while, which is a shame. I wish he was more present. We need him. Yeah, you know. I agree. Because let me tell you, that guy, he's got untapped talent and untapped music that you can't even imagine. You know? mm-hmm. Way deeper than anything you've heard from him. I believe it. Um, I believe it. Okay, speaking of guitar playing, I want to talk about your guitar playing again for a second. You played guitar on the Bob Seger song, House Behind a House, correct? First of all, how did that happen? I love Bob Seger. And secondly, your riff in that song doesn't sound, it sounds kind of similar to Waddy's riff in Stevie Nicks's Edge of 17. And uh, they're only, uh-huh. you know, about a year apart. And I wondered if that was, am I reading too much into it? Is it, was it intentional? Was it sort of a nod? Tell me the story of working with Bob on that song. Well, we were called, we were called by uh, Jimmy. Jimmy called us all to come in there. He was producing that record, and he called us. I think it was Bobby on Rush, Bobby. I can't remember who the band was, but you know, they were going to play with Bob Seger. Fuck yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. I was there early, of course. You know, because you know Bob Seger. Forget it. One of the greatest. You know? Yep. Um, but whatever I played on that, Waddy's part on on Edge of Seventeen. I could never do that. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I could never do that, and right. I was not influenced by by Waddy's part on that. Huh. Whatever I did, I did out of my own head. I didn't do it because uh, I'd heard Waddy do something. Uh, I can't do what he does, what yeah. Bob does, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, and I would never, I would never attempt to no. imitate anything he. There was a similar, there's a similar kind of groove to the riffing, and I just wondered if there was a story there. Why do you think back in the day, why did people call? Cooch to play on their album. What was the thing that you were bringing? Was it, I mean, I know from talking to other people in your situation that part of it, a lot of it is just being a good hang, you know? I know a guy, I know Cooch, he's a lot of fun. He's fun to have around. Let's call him, he's great at playing guitar. But what in particular do you think it is that people are calling Danny Korchmarfar for specifically? Okay, well, I was on whatever record, whatever dates I did, and I never did anywhere near as many as a lot of the session right. guys. I was never on the level of the, the heavy duty session guys like Dean. He can do anything, yeah, anything. You know, he's he's to me the grandmaster of session guitar players. Not me. I do one thing. Me. Mm. You know, I only play one way, my way. I don't. I can't cover all these areas. 
I don't bring in a, a huge uh, collection of guitars and, and uh, pedal boards and stuff. I don't. I, I play one way, my way. Mm. And my way is informed by soul music, lots, mm. totally by soul music. Curtis Mayfield, Steve Cropper, and those cats were my, my heroes, mm. you know. And mm. I learned to play a lot from them. And I'm a, you know, I know how to play rhythm guitar. That means I know how to set up a song. Also, having learned from Carolyn and Lou and Peter how to play a goddamn song, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So if I was called, I was called because everyone knew I could play, come up with great parts for a song. But I was always called to be me. I was never called to like, well, can you play like a country lick on this? Okay, <laughs> not me. Don't fucking call me for that. No, the answer is no, I can't. And I won't, you know. I only play one way, my way. And if you want me, if you want that, call me and I'll bring it to you. I know how to play songs. And also I'd had so much success with Linda and James and, yeah. and uh, thanks thanks to, to uh, Peter and, and, and Lou. You know, I had a lot, you know, and our names were on those albums. So mm-hmm. they knew who to call. But I was always called to be me. I was never called to like, you know, can you do this? Can you can you play like a, a heavy metal lick here? Or a car? No, <laughs> never. And I don't do that. And I never did. And I don't, and I never, and I don't need to. Yeah. I play the way I play, but I'm a great rhythm guitar player. I know how to play songs, and that's why it was always in addition to whatever session I was born into. I always knew how to play a great part on a, on a, on a song, mm-hmm. then and now. Cool. Mm-hmm. Cool. I was curious. Okay, I got a couple mm-hmm. more for you. Speaking of playing guitar with people, uh, you played with uh, Kim Carnes on the Mistaken Identity album and therefore on Betty Davis Knives, right? None. No, I didn't play on Betty Davis, so that's why. You did Okay. Mm, Waddy played on that. Oh, okay. I, I played okay. on some of the other tracks. You know, that that was, uh, um, Val was producing that, so he brought us all in. Mm. I played on I played on probably one or two of those tracks, but not Betty Davis' side. Okay. That's Waddy. I was Waddy's. curious, because that song was huge. And that, I mentioned earlier, we try to touch on some of the business side very sensitively and respectfully on here. I am curious, with... With all that you've done, both played on, written, produced, whatever it might be, when you get your mailbox money, what's the thing that gets the that generates the most revenue today? Well, songwriting. Is there a particular song though? Is there one song that towers above everything else? Because you got a lot of hits. There's five or six. There's five or six of them that uh, make the most money. Okay. Yeah. Okay. The best, you know. Yeah. N- not all of them, but but but. You know, maybe five or six of them, you know, okay, to make the most. But I'm very proud of the stuff I did with Don, you know. Yeah, we building the perfect beast. We basically co wrote all those, yeah, all those songs, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, I was curious. Um, I mean, I guess you know, we you touched on this earlier the music business being what it is today, so different. There's just not those budgets for people to come down to the studio and play a lick like you could have played. Do you miss those? What What about the old music industry? Do you miss the most? Well, the thing I would what I would say that I miss is is getting in the studio with four or five guys and cutting mm-hmm. and cutting tracks. Mm-hmm. Everything is done now piecemeal, one yeah. guy at a time. And um, let me tell you, most of the bands and there's bands, well, they're called bands, you know, that I hear and that that I like. The War on Drugs, I think it's mm-hmm. that's terrific. I love them. <laughs> Tame Impala, I think that's yes. terrific. Uh, yeah. But that's one guy. Both those bands, that's one guy. Mm-hmm. That's not a band. Mm-hmm. They don't have a band sound. There's one guy, mm-hmm. you know? There's very few bands that are actual bands now that have a sound. And that's what I miss. 
the sound comes from when you get four or five guys that know how to play together and can do, walk in the studio all together, bam, here we go. Yeah. And that doesn't happen anymore. Now it's all, all done piecemeal. And so that I miss. And so what I miss the most is going to a studio with a, with a great engineer like Val or, or Hank Sacalo or, or uh, Shelley mm-hmm. or, or, or Ed, Ed Cerny or any of these guys, these genius guys. You go in there, they set you up, and pretty soon you're there. You're, you're hitting it all together. Mm-hmm. The sound comes from all of you playing together, not from one guy at a time but from all of you playing together. And that's what I miss the most. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just talked to Shelley. My, my, band does, by the way, my band does that. Media family does that. Well, and I we can cut, imagine. We cut all together. We cut all together. Isn't that the we're beauty the room, of working, working with a bunch of your buddies is you can, you have the, uh, and everybody living close by, you can do that. You can do it just like you always did it back in the day, the way you love to do it. Well, in our band, that's what we do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't, that doesn't happen a lot in no. other situations, but with us, that's how we do it. That's how we do it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, uh, you guys are lucky. I talked to Shelly Yakis. Is it Yakis or Yakis? Yakis. He's one of the greatest ever. He is. I just talked to him recently. Rock and roll engineers ever, ever, ever. Yep. I loved working with him. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's the best. I just talked to him recently too. We did a similar thing that you and I are doing. Um, okay, I got just a couple more questions. One is, sure. what was it like working with Hanson? Because you produced their album, The Walk, and I get some flack for this. I actually think Hanson are a bunch of amazingly talented young men. And people want to dump on them because of Mbop as being like a, you know, a gimmick or whatever. But those are little boys writing and playing those songs. That takes some talent. And, uh, and I'm curious what your experience was like. And you can tell me I'm wrong if I'm wrong. Well, no, I'm not going to tell you wrong. Umbop was a terrific record, great record. It, it was. You listen to, actually, the lyrics to the, the the verse lyrics are very good. You know. Yeah. People think, oh, this is just Umbop, the chorus, but no, the ver- the verse lyrics are very good on that. By the time I got to work with them, I'd gone through a lot of different stuff, and uh, they were used to running everything themselves and and weren't sure what to do exactly. Mm. Uh, I picked a couple of times. I went out there to Tulsa. First time I worked with them and listened to some songs and, and um, they were trying to figure out what to put out as a, what the next singles were going to be. Their big hit, what was it called? Penny and Me? I think it was called. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Well, that one was, they didn't play that for me. And I said, well, what else do you have? You know, they played <laughs> me a few things. I said, ah, it's good, good. What else do you have? Well, we have this one, other one, Penny and Me. I said, well, that's, that's it. That's the one there.
so we recorded that, and it actually did well. It was a top ten single for a yeah. while for a minute. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they're talented boys. Uh, they're also completely wrapped up in this. You know, they're very they're brothers. Yeah. So their whole situation is a family affair, mm-hmm. completely and utterly. Their father manages them, or he did. He's mm-hmm. very nice fellow. They're very insular about that kind of stuff. Interesting. Uh, and they were very, you know, they, they had their very definite ideas about how everything should be according to how the family was. Now, with me, I'm uh, not so religious. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I can imagine. Uh, so, and there's some levels that they didn't, that I, I wasn't on the same page with. Them. I thought there should be more sex yeah. in this stuff. Yeah. But they were, they were kind of insecure about sex. They were, you know, these guys were serious Christians and they had a different attitude about sex that I had, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of what, what needs to be in pop music, you know, mm-hmm. pop music, there has to be blood and guts. There has to be sex. There has mm-hmm. to be passion. There has to be depth, you know, mm-hmm. and that, uh, you can't, uh, kind of wishy-washy kind of float around it. There was one track in that song, um, Penny and me, where they said, and we're making it out. I said, don't say that. Say making out. You were making out. You were making out. You had your tongue down her throat, guys. Remember? You know, sex. And they were, like, they were embarrassed by it. They were insecure about it. They were unsure, you know. And I think they're all Christian. And, you know, oh, I wanted so them to get dirty. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so funny. I was always encouraging my, my artists to get dirty. Right, right. The same thing, the same thing I just told you about Van Halen and, and you know, yeah. with, with, with Gary. You know. I get it. Uh, so, you know, come on, guys. What are we talking about here? You know? Yeah. Okay. Babes. Pussy. You know? <laughs> they were probably all married by then. They were all in their late teens and married That's, and started families. I don't families. care if you're fucking married or not. <laughs> the point is, you know, you're making pop records, you know, then, then talk about your wife, you know, talk about how you like, like fucking your wife. So anything, but make it carnal, make it deep. Yeah. Make it, you know, give us something here. Yeah, and that's always been my attitude. Not that everything has to be about sex, but uh, sure. that there has, there should be sex in there, yeah. and you should never apologize for sex. No, oh. no, you know what I'm I mean? With you, I do. Um, okay, good. I wonder yeah, what the nice story boys. was. They there. were nice boys, but they they were nice boys, but they were also didn't have a lot of studio knowledge and a lot of studio experience. You know, they're yeah. questioning me a lot. They're always questioning me. Is that right, man? What are you doing? <laughs> hey, what the fuck are you hiring me for, man? And ultimately, they ended up agreeing with me because I got them their hit, Penny and Me. They weren't even going to do that fucking song. (laughs) Sounds like you guys were coming from totally different camps. You could say that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You you should say that. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. I got one more left. I want to know what is the Sunset Grill?
You talked earlier. You mentioned right. Benmont. You, Benmont, and, da- and Don write this song. It's one of my favorites. I don't, I've always wondered, what is that? What are you talking about? What is the Sunset Grill? All right. Well, all of Don's songs came out of discussions we would have talking about what he wanted to say and how he, what he wanted to do. The Sunset Grill is a hamburger stand on Sunset Boulevard right next to the uh, Guitar Center. Okay. And it's been there for a long time. The thing that Don liked about it was it was an old man that ran it. He made those burgers himself. It wasn't corporate. It was like a family affair. It was run by him and his family. And he made those burgers himself. And Don was very impressed by that. He liked the idea. He wanted to contrast that against modern society. Mm. But one guy, a guy that makes those burgers himself and takes pride in what he does. So that was the kind of the start of the idea of that song. We've been talking about this for a while, Sunset Grill, Sunset Grill. I was going, okay, I get the idea. And I had... Uh, I had a piece of music. I was trying to, at the time I was trying to be Joe Zavano, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, and that tune, the, the music to that song originally was in six, eight time. And, uh, I, I thought it was like going to be this groovy kind of, you know, weather report kind of jam. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. But when he started talking about sunset grill, I re, uh, I went back to it and put it in four, four time, put a beat up on the old Lynn machine, the mm-hmm. Lynn drum machine. He made a demo of it. And then I brought Benmon in because it needed a bridge and I had run out of ideas. So I brought Benmon in. Of course, he came up with wonderful stuff as he always does. Benmon is one of the great, great yeah. cats ever, ever, ever. Good. Played it for Don. And I also had the idea down at the sunset grill. I came, you know, I had mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the chorus, obviously. Uh, you know, pretty obvious. Yeah. And then Don wrote the fantastic lyrics. And the lyrics are about. A guy that makes burgers by hand, then it's about L.A. You know? yeah. And at the end, he says, what would we, you know, what would we do without all these idiots anyway? All our friends are here. In other words, you know, we're, we're kind of trapped. We want to leave. All of us want to leave. We don't want to be in, in, in L.A., you know, yeah. but we all can't leave because all of us are here. Yeah. And that's kind of one of the subtexts of that song. Got it. Brilliant song. Brilliant song. It is. I've always wondered if the Sunset Grill was a literal place or a fictional place, you know, an idea. Both. Okay. <clears throat> Got it. Well, it's literal, but it's not fictional. You know, Henley made it into what he wanted it to be. Hen- yeah. Henley took that phrase and, and made it into what he needed to be to, to say what he wanted to say. Got it. It's genius. Mm-hmm. I love it. Yeah. Um, yes. Okay. Yes. All right. Last two. Qu- well, first, one thing I want to bring up, going back to the immediate family, I believe there's a documentary in the works on you guys, and it's going to come out next year. That's right. Yeah. Is that still happening? Well, that's right. Denny Tedesco, who did the Wrecking Crew. So good. Yes. Good one. Mm-hmm. Uh, him and his producers got in touch with us uh, about, you know, doing a documentary about immediate family, which they see as kind of the next step of the wrecking crew because all of us were nice. you know the heavy session kids that kind of that came with the next generation after wrecking crew mm-hmm. and uh, but of course the, the hook being that we now have a band you know mm-hmm. wrecking crew never had a band you know mm-hmm. they never went on the road they never did gigs they just did sessions and they go home they do more sessions and they also didn't get their names on those records you gotta remember Good peter point. asher one of the reasons we, we became so successful peter asher put our names Good point. And, and lou Put our names on on those records, so everyone knew who played on them, and uh, that gave us a tremendous edge, you know. Yeah. So Denny approached us about a continuation of, not a continuation, but the next generation kind of a wrecking crew, 
And we've already gotten a ton of interviews by some serious people, you know, Linda and Carol and James Jackson, nice. Phil Collins, Peter Asher, Lou Adler. They've all done interviews for this, this documentary, but nice. of course we're on hold now right? because everything is. But when it comes out, it's going to be a hell of a thing. Let me oh, say. I can't wait to Absolutely. see it. Awesome. It's a hell of a story. It is. It's a hell of a story. It's about, it's about guys that started playing 50 years ago and are still playing and still rocking the house now. Amazing. So it's a terrific story. It is. Well, I can't wait to see it. Uh, You can't go wrong with a good rock doc. And I would imagine you guys' story is going to be amazing. So I'm excited to see it. it. Well, it is amazing. It It is. It's an amazing story. story. And it's a story of of, of cats staying together, loving each other and staying together and being a family. That's what we are. We are a family. So I can't wait for it to get finished, you know, obviously. Right on. on hold now, but. Cool. All right. Last question. I, uh, you know, I, I, like I said, I brought up, you know, a bunch of songs, a bunch of moments that mean something to me. But when you look back over your career, what is one of your favorite memories? What's one of your favorite stories to tell? And it could be anything. I mean, you've seen it all in 50 years. But what's the thing when you're just like, I cannot, I still can't believe that happened to me. What is that thing? And it can be anything. There is no one thing like that, man. Really? There is no one woman like that. What it is is the big picture of the family, of all of us, yeah. of Peter and Lou and Carol and Linda, Wadi, Russ, Lee, Souther, Hinley. That's what the story is. Yeah. That's what it's all about. And I can't, uh, I can't codify that into one thing or one statement or one experience. That's the experience, the experience of being with your brothers, your brothers and your sisters and creating music over a long period of time and getting better and better at it and loving each other and uh, uh, the experience of all of us being together. Mm-hmm. That is, is what it's about. Is there yes. one incident that I could uh, ascribe that to? No, there isn't. Mm-hmm. No, it's, it's a series of wonderful things that happened. And the main thing when I think back on that is that it was all of us and we loved each other and we supported each other and we helped each other. We couldn't wait to play music together. We couldn't wait to hang out. We hung out all the time. Mm-hmm. When we weren't in the studio, we were in each other's cribs, hanging yeah. out, yeah. listening to the record. Ray Charles, Elvis Presley, Frank Sinatra, the Beatles, uh, Ross. Oh, that's all we did, man. Mm-hmm. So it's the family situation. Yeah, it's the it's the group. It's it's the it's all of us. That's yeah. great. That's great. I you couldn't. Have, I mean, it can't be said any better than that. Thank you, Daddy, for yeah. all of the fantastic work and art and music you've put out in this world it's made the world a better place thank you for everything you've done thank you that's awfully sweet of you to say thank you so much for saying that that's great there you have it cooch that was so much fun i love that conversation i want to close it out with uh i was so glad to hear that he loved that ivan neville album as much as i did so i thought let's close it out with another ivan neville song this song is called money talks and you heard all the great people that are playing on this song not just on this song but on this album including cooch himself on guitar so check this out i love this song i love this album i love that conversation uh now I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to do. I think what I'm going to do is I think we're going to release one episode from each immediate family member a month. So there'll be another one in July, another one in August, and another one in September. We may run them all back to back to back. And if we do that, it will probably be in August. But I'm thinking it might be more fun just to spread them out and put one out every month. 
And uh, you know now how the band came together. Please, as I mentioned, get on social media. Check them out. Uh, follow them. Look out for that live streaming concert on the 26th of June. That's going to be fantastic. And uh, I'm telling you, each one of these guys, we get a conversation just like the one you just heard. I don't know how you couldn't enjoy that. Um, now, huge thanks, as always, to Yan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man, for putting all of this together. Thank you, buddy, for everything you do and for being my partner in this. Guys, if this is the first time you're listening to us, go back in the archives. We No doubt we have had people on the show that you will love and a conversation that will entertain you. Go in there and listen. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. You can like our page. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. We have opened up a Patreon page. We encourage anyone who wants to get involved to donate to the Patreon page. There's two tiers, the $2 a month and the $5 a month. You can set it and forget it. There's different benefits with each. Uh, the link is in the description of this show. P touch that, get on there, and get involved if you'd like. We love uh, and appreciate all of you who contribute to helping make this thing happen. And uh, we will be back next week. Our guest next week is one of the most legendary artists ever who is not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and should be. And this person, thankfully, is starting to get a lot more attention than they have for years. And I think that's probably because they were much bigger in Europe, specifically the UK, than they have been in the States. But this person is a legend. So you're going to want to come back and listen to that conversation, I guarantee you. All right? Thanks, everybody. We love you. Oh, and we should have a bonus deep dive episode coming out later this week. It is a blast. You're going to like it as well. Thanks, guys. <laughs>